Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Well, as recently as Monday, it looked like Joe Biden was going to walk it. By Tuesday, it was election day. By Wednesday, it was on a knife edge. Here we are on Thursday, Biden edging that knife edge, but uh, Trump's lawyers ready to wield their own daggers. Where are we in, the, in this US election? What was planned and what was accident? Who is going to win and how are they going to win? Uh, joining me to discuss this for the Critic podcast is uh, the Critic's US editor, uh, Ollie Wiseman. Uh, also joining from Washington, D.C. is Matthew Continetti, the founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon and a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and also the Republican political consultant, Luke Thompson. Luke Thompson, I, I, I want to start with you. Uh, given the uh, apparent lead that uh, Joe Biden had in the polls, is uh, the Trump team now thinking that they've got a real opportunity and events have, have gone surprisingly well for them? Or did they actually think they had a good chance of winning and this is a fallback position for them? Both of those things, I think, can be true. Um, you know, in, in every campaign, uh, even if it's just an exercise in, in self-motivation, uh, you have to kind of wake up every morning believing that you're going to win. Um, and I think that the Trump team uh, absolutely believed they were going to win. Uh, I think they would have been believing that even if the sort of public polling consensus that Biden was way ahead had panned out um, and they lost by a lot. They would have every, you know, every day they'd have gotten up and gone to work expecting to, to work extremely hard and hopefully win. As it has turned out, um, the race was incredibly close, far closer than expected, and, and frankly, far closer than we might have expected given how high unemployment is and the difficulty that incumbent presidents have getting reelected under conditions of unemployment. What we're running into right now uh, with the sort of final vote counting and then, of course, potentially this extending through recount uh, votes in, in certain geographies is the inevitable byproduct of any extremely close election uh, at any real scale. Um, you know, if this this were if these were a series of U.S. Senate elections, uh, this would be going on. What's unique is first its presidency. Right. And we have not had a presidential recount like this other than 2000 or sorry, a presidential count like this since 2000. But unlike 2000, the initial count is dragging out because we have a flood of, of mail ballots due to coronavirus, and it's taking place in multiple states at the same time. So there's, there's a confluence of factors uh, to make this moment especially confusion or confusing. The fact that it's the presidency, the fact that it, it is taking place in multiple states, um, and the count is complicated by the large number of early and absentee votes being cast through the mail. Well, uh, Matthew Continenti, what, what can we uh, find to explain this uh, rallying for, for Trump in either in the last days of the vote or due to uh, the polling simply getting it wrong? Uh, Luke's just spoken about the high unemployment and the exit polls suggested that the economy was the most important um, issue for, for most voters. Uh, but nevertheless, the United States has done better than, than many other Western economies in recent years. Um, was this, in essence, a vote for, um, uh, for, for Trump's economic policy, or has the wider uh, cultural malaise 
uh, of America and the West more generally played into Trump's hands for those who don't like uh, the look of riot and, and, and discord and discontent? Well, I think without a doubt, the biggest loser of Tuesday was the polling industry. And it's clear that many major pollsters are going to have to re-examine um, their methodologies. And um, so it's hard for us to say what exactly uh, is responsible for the closeness of this election. I would say that uh, if you do look at the exit poll, you find that late deciders did break for Trump. And what that suggests is uh, that uh, many of these mail-in and early ballots were cast, I'd say, about a month ago, after Trump's performance uh, in the first presidential debate, his coronavirus, the way that he handled that diagnosis, and the general kind of uh, sense of chaos and, um, and desperation um, that accompanied that, that moment in our history. The late deciders probably saw Trump's performance in the second presidential debate, where he was able effectively to turn very briefly the nation's attention onto Joe Biden's agenda. And uh, I think that that moment toward the end of that debate where Biden said that it, it was his um, goal to transition uh, our economy away from fossil fuels uh, that may have led to some erosion uh, in his support or some higher support for Trump. It may have made the race in Pennsylvania, for example, um, as, as close as it, it may turn out to be. The, um, the other factors work, though, are clearly um, there's something of a shy Trump voter effect, that people who support Donald Trump just do not want to share their views on him uh, for fear of social stigma. And I think also uh, people uh, in my business tend to kind of act cynically toward public displays of enthusiasm, like these boat parades that were going on or the car caravans that were springing up of just um, nowhere to drive around waving Trump flags out of the back of the car. And, you know, sophisticated media types kind of look at that stuff as kitsch and camp. But I think it did reveal that there are reservoirs of support for Donald Trump, um, though not perhaps enough to win him a second term. Well, uh, the question of him winning the second term is now surely dependent on uh, legal action. Uh, what is the course now? I mean, the, 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 um, the punchline is, is stop the count, but uh, what, what, what is the legal action designed to do? Is it designed to invalidate in-mail voting uh, or votes of which there was any question whether they arrived after the, uh, the polling stations closed? And if so, how would that be proved? Or uh, is it more specific to identifying um, perhaps very small numbers of, of clear and genuine fraud, none of which have, have yet been identified? I think it's, um, if I could jump in, I think it's kind of a bit of everything. I mean, there's different, the, the Trump legal team is, is doing different things in different states and, and kind of doing everything it can, wherever it can, right? I think a lot of it, a lot of what happens in the next week or two, um, I'd be interested in what the others think, but it sort of depends on on these counts we're still waiting on, and, and if it look if these all go, or if the, most of them go Biden's way, and and actually Trump needs things to work out in legal action in three or four states, not just one state, then I think um, you know things a lot of the drama starts to fizzle away. Um, so so yeah, I, but I don't know what the others think about that. Well, right now um, we're doing an initial count, and you have uh, Trump campaign attorneys in heavily Democratic uh, cities, which are the, the last places to report 
uh, wanting access to uh, the counting areas so that they can validate that the count is, is going fairly. Now, in, in some places, this is not an issue because the, the state parties provide um, designated observers. Uh, in other places, it's a much more ad hoc system. Uh, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia County, especially, there's now a lot of conflict. There have been judicial rulings that have then been overturned. Um, it looks like recently by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. We don't need to go into too much detail, but step one, uh, the, the, this initial legal clash is over, over who is going to get to observe the count, to what extent, and under what parameters. Then we will get a provisional count of the vote. Um, th at that stage, the legal arguments will shift away from which votes are allowed in, right? What is a legal vote and what is an illegal vote towards uh, whether or not we have an accurate count of the votes that have been cast. And that's what will be a recount phase that will have its own set of litigation. If it comes to a place where the Trump campaign needs recounts in multiple states, say in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Nevada, and Georgia in order to be viable, I think it's unlikely uh, that they would be able to proceed at that point. Um, because as Bush v. Gore makes clear, there is an implicit ticking timeline. Uh, there's a ticking clock on this. And so they would need to get this count done quickly, move into the recount phase, and then have a realistic time horizon to get those recounts done with a plausible expectation that those recounts would, would reverse um, the outcome. Judges get to have prudential interventions a lot of times here, and as do elected officials who in many of these states are elected Democrats. That doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily perpetrate voter fraud, but I think it's safe to assume that they're not going to go the extra mile make sure, to make sure every I is dotted and every T is crossed and to scrutinize every ballot if it looks like Joe Biden is coming out ahead given the status quo. That's a very high hill for the Trump campaign to climb. Um, and so that's part of why they're focusing so much right now in the initial vote, because if they can exclude ballots that come in late, um, especially ballots that are cast late or that they can plausibly make the argument have been cast late, then the initial vote will stand at, in favor of Trump. And at that point, momentum and inertia actually redounds to his benefit rather than to Biden's benefit. I, I wonder what scale we're talking about here. So let, let's say, uh, uh, you know, evidence where they can suggest that ballot papers were, uh, uh, were, were received late. Um, I mean, uh, how, how easy is that to prove if, uh, if a, a uh, counting area has got all the ballots and has already counted them? Is, is it possible to prove they may have been received late? And if they can, it would be difficult, surely, to prove a very substantial body were received late and not enough to change the result of the, of the whole election. That's right. Different states have different rules uh, when they take ballots. You know, some states, your mail ballot has to arrive by 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. on election day. And if it shows up the next morning, sorry, you know, we're going to pulp it. That's it. In other states, and this includes Pennsylvania, uh, ballots can show up later so long as they're postmarked on the day that they're mailed. And so that postmark becomes the critical piece of material indicating that um, that the ballot was postmarked or that, that the ballot was put into the box, the mailbox on time. Additionally, there are some special considerations for military ballots, which are allowed to come in late. Um, and that this actually gets to one of the weaknesses of the Trump campaign's legal argument. They want to essentially say election day is a thing. It's defined by the, by the sort of, um, you know, the turning of the globe. We've had our 24 hour election day and it's, and it's over. So anything that comes in after that is not a vote because it's 
being cast not in the wind the legitimate voting window it's something else it's and where they're going to run into trouble is that we have explicit carve outs for other kinds of votes that are allowed to come in late now there's a counter argument to that which is well we make special designations for those groups of people because they have special circumstances which actually reinforces that for everybody else any kind of extension of the timeline doesn't work that's the debate that's that's taking place right now in Pennsylvania. My very strong suspicion is that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which is extremely partisan and is controlled by Democrats and has been a partisan actor through redistricting up until the present, will kill any GOP attempt to uh, impose res reasonable restrictions on which when ballots can qualify as legal. Um, and the Supreme Court will be reticent, at least if their recent ruling on Pennsylvania is anything to go by, to uh, overturn the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. However, if it turns out that Trump has won other states and we wind up in a situation where it's like the year 2000 and Pennsylvania is the new Florida, then you would have a state Supreme Court deciding the president. And at that point, certain structural considerations about you know, the constitutional position of the, Supreme, of the U.S. Supreme Court kick in. And I think it would be more likely that you would see greater scrutiny of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's behavior by the U.S. Supreme Court if Pennsylvania is decisive. However, at the present, it doesn't look like Pennsylvania is going to be decisive. Well, uh, Matthew Continetti, uh, uh, Luke Thompson sketched out the way in which uh, the individual legal actions go through uh, each uh, affected state and the, the Supreme Courts of that state. But what would that path to the uh, federal Supreme Court be? And how quickly could uh, the Supreme Court uh, adjudicate if it chose to do so. Is this something that could stretch on for, for a couple of months, or are we talking about a resolution uh, within, the, the, within a six or seven day framework? It's hard to say. Um, we are, as Luke suggested, we are running up against a hard deadline, which is the assembly of the Electoral College when the presidency is actually decided. And I believe that's in late December. This is not about winning the election at this point, uh, in my view. This is about setting the terms of the debate for after the election. And President Trump has always made this very clear. He's telegraphed this since the summer when he started his campaign against mail-in ballots. Um, in fact, we already had clues back when uh, he was first elected, and he said famously that he actually won the popular vote. It was just fraud that prevented it from being revealed. So if he loses, uh, which uh, I agree with Luke, it looks, it looks unlikely that he will, um, he will, he will, and his supporters will say that the election was stolen from them because of, um, uh, because of the mail-in balloting. Now, I don't know if he'd be successful at, at the Supreme Court level for the reasons that Luke very ably laid out, but this would be the narrative that you would find um, from Trump himself and from his 88 million Twitter followers uh, and supporters for some time. And so you have, a, some, you have a combustible situation until the next president is sworn in because you have one president, incumbent president, and his grassroots who don't believe that this was a legitimate uh, election. Um, now, the X factor here is Republican elites, um, including Senator Mitch McConnell, who it looks like will return as the Senate majority leader. They um, they have been clear so far, uh, people like Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, that right now we are counting the vote. We should not stop counting the vote. If there are claims, then you investigate those claims, but you have to look for evidence. You, in their divergent remarks from Trump, you begin to see the Republican Party slowly thinking of what its post-Trump future would be like. But it, 
what, it, what all of this suggests to me is, for all that we thought things would change because of Tuesday, they're not changing. I mean, just literally, as, as Ollie mentioned, I mean, politics, you're going, to have a, you're going to have a President Biden who would be severely constrained uh, by a Republican Senate, even if it's a bare majority, uh, as well as reduced uh, numbers in the House. This might, has the potential to be the lowest, the, the lowest House majority, narrowest House majority since the New Deal. Um, and we only can speculate at what the leadership fight among the Democrats is going to be in the House. Um, so you'll have that. You'll have Trump, who since 2015 has been the defining figure of American politics. More people voted for him in 2020 than they did in 2016. He grew his vote. <laughs> That's incredible, considering what he's been through. He's still going to be there. He's still going to have his Twitter following. If Fox decides to move away from him, he has One America News Network and Newsmax TV. He will still be there. And uh, America is going to be, once again, caught in the middle. So. Um, I think for people who had these grand expectations about how the 2020 election would either usher in uh, a, a liberal paradise or somehow calm the populist passions that have been um, driving American politics for the past half decade or so, um, I think those people are going to be disappointed by what happens over the next two months. Oliver Wiseman, um, this... We're on potentially the verge of Joe Biden becoming president, and yet it feels like ordering a, a glass of the flattest champagne for, for the Democrats. It, it, it's not the great victory they were uh, expecting. Uh, you know, they haven't carried the, 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 the hill fully. Um, it feels like it would be a president who's constrained. Uh, if, if the Democrats can't win in these circumstances or can't win with, with a solid majority in these circumstances, what, what is the soul-searching which is going on or, or frankly needs to go on in, in that party? Well, you already see, uh, even on the British left, actually, but, but, but the US left too, people looking at these results and saying, you know, if only we were more ideologically pure, if only we had sold them the, 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 the sort of unfiltered version of um, democratic socialism that, that we just know that people want. Um, and, and so I suspect they'll be the powerful, and, uh, but, but in my view, not especially persuasive, um, uh, sorry, loud, but not very persuasive kind of argument that this is because we, the Democrats, taxed the center and didn't give, us, give, didn't, didn't give voters a clear enough um, clear enough um, kind of message. I suspect the opposite is true and that um, Joe Biden didn't do enough, you know, we sort of, I, I credited Joe Biden throughout the campaign sort of trying to hold the line against the left. And I, I guess he, he did that enough to win the presidency, but not enough to win um, elsewhere. And I think, you know, it's a real wake up call when you look at some of these Senate races where um, Democrats were sort of overexcited about taking down these Republican big beasts um, like Mitch McConnell or, or Lindsey Graham and they just came nowhere near it. I mean, so they need, there needs to be a big conversation about why that is. I suspect instead they'll kind of chase, chase rainbows um, and, and, and claim that uh, if only, yeah, you know, not, not quite learn the right lessons, but, um, but we'll see. Well, it's, it's still uh, more likely that uh, Donald Trump will not have a second term than he will. Uh, Luke Thompson, uh, assuming for the moment that, uh, that uh, Donald Trump is going to be remembered as a one-term 
president. What does this really mean for the Republicans? Will they uh, distance themselves from uh, Trump and see him as a, as, a, as, a, as a maverick figure who, you know, it was fun whilst it lasted, but he's now gone off to uh, do whatever he wants to do next and the Republicans will regroup and perhaps go in a different direction? Or actually, has the Republican Party uh, shackled itself to the persona of Donald Trump? And, and secondly, uh, going down the route of legal action here, is that in danger of, of similarly shackling the Republicans as, as, a, as a party uh, which actually uh, has recourse to lawyers rather than people a little bit too, uh, too readily? I mean, the last, the last question I'll just dismiss out of hand, sorry, as a no. Um, you know, everybody expects parties to fight hard to win elections, and um, I don't think the recourse to lawyers had any effect on the Democrats after 2000. And I don't think it's going to have any effect on the Republicans after 2020. Um, going back to your, your previous question about the continuity and change uh, within the GOP around Trump, I, I guess I have a somewhat contrary take to what's popular in, you know, sort of conservative intellectual and media circles, and that I see a great deal more continuity leading up to Trump than discontinuity. Um, in many respects, if you took John McCain's temperament and Mitt Romney's resume, at least as understand understood by the a general voter and combine them, you would get somebody with like Donald Trump and then throw in, you know, his ubiquitous name ID from his, his uh, pre-political celebrity life. And, and that's, you know, look, we, we got a, a movie star elected president, Ronald Reagan too, right? Uh, the, the Republican party is always, it is a great mysterious beast to most of the press, including in many cases, conservative media people too. Um, to someone who works in Republican politics, like, yes, Trump has aesthetic and temperamental things that are different from previous politicians, although not as different as those politicians are in person, perhaps. Uh, in, in many ways, he just lets a lot more hang out in the public eye. Um, but in terms of being someone who fights his own party's establishment, uh, espouses the efficacy of business, um, and business experience, and, uh, you know, has a maverick take no prisoners personality, you know, I think that that all fits in great deal of continuity with with elements of the McCain candidacy and elements of the the, the Romney candidacy. You know, what what's the real difference between fight China and self deport versus, uh, you know, fight China and build a wall? There's not really that big of a difference. Um, I'm a business guy who can solve it uh, because I ran Bain Capital. I'm a business guy who can solve it because I built big, big buildings in Manhattan. And you saw me fire Gary Busey on television. All right. Um, so all of that is is to say that the Republican Party will not renounce Trump. Um, anybody who figured out how to cash in on doing that is no longer in Republican politics and instead one of the eight dozen senior advisors of the Lincoln Project. Um, and so, no, uh, they won't renounce him. Having said that, I think there there have been a few important things that have changed. Um, there has never been a popular base of support within the Republican Party for the democracy agenda, even as there is a very strong popular base of support uh, for a, a hawkish foreign policy and a strong military. So Trump in some ways has limbed off a bit of, of, of uh, the, the policy range of policies in the GOP. Uh, likewise, I think, the, um, I think the entitlement wars are over. Uh, at least for the foreseeable future, we will see Republicans rediscover fiscal conservatism now that you have a Biden presidency. Uh, but I do not think we're going to see serious attempts to restructure Social Security and Medicare moving forward. 
until or unless there is a major intervention imposed on American politics by reality in the form of some sort of fiscal crisis caused by, at least proximately caused by, uh, excessive entitlement spending. But um, that, that would be, as far as I'm concerned, those were both areas where Republican elites were out of step with Republican voters, and Trump has merely brought the party elites more closely into alignment with where the voters have been more or less unchanged since the 1990s. Well, uh, Matthew Continente, do, do you see um, uh, Donald Trump as continuity Republicanism, or will he be parceled as, as, a, as, a, as an aberration? Oh, I, I, I mean, well, you have to divide between the personal and the political here. Uh, the personally, stylistically, Donald Trump, I think, is an aberration. His style of politics is unlike any uh, we have ever had as our president, um, and probably We'll never have someone quite like Donald Trump, someone so brash, uh, so uh, transgressive, um, so willing to uh, push the envelope um, rhetorically. Um, so, so that's one thing. Politically, I agree very much with Luke. I think Donald Trump uh, benefited from not only having the, re you know, kind of the profile of a Republican candidate, um, but also benefiting from the, a long-term change in the Republican Party. The Republican Party over the last 60 years has become less the party of uh, this country's um, WASP elite and more the party of uh, white working class Americans. We understand class in America through the lens of education, so you think of the white voters without college degrees have become more and more important to the Republican coalition. So that's not going away. Um, and as I said in my earlier answer, Trump's not really going away either. Um, and as Luke also alluded, um, the Trump agenda is not going away. Uh, the Republican Party is going to continue to be hawkish against China. It, the idea that, that somehow the Republicans should adopt a comprehensive immigration reform that includes amnesty for illegal immigrants, which is what the conventional wisdom was in Washington in 2012 after the 2012 election, that's dead. It's dead. It will not happen. And it won't happen because considering that Donald Trump began his campaign in 2015 with a very um, controversial remark about um, uh, Mexican immigrants to this country. He increased his vote among Hispanics. In fact, he's, he has the highest level of minority support of any Republican in, I think, 60 years. That just shows that, that the, Im the immigration issue is very different than a lot of our elites imagine it to be. So he's changed that. And what else has he changed? Um, the way that we think about uh, trade, um, and, you know, I don't, uh, I don't see any Republican candidates in 2024 um, suggesting that we should have any big um, multilateral trade deals. Um, the way we thought about in intervention, I think um, Luke is right about that as well. So he, and of course, entitlements, which Luke also mentioned. So he's definitely changed the Republican Party. I guess I put it this way. It's much more likely that Donald Trump addresses the 2024 Republican convention than George W. Bush does. And we forget through all the um, uh, rose tinted lenses that uh, this nation's uh, journalists now look upon George W. Bush, the man left office with a 27% approval rating. And I can tell you, Trump will not leave office with that approval rating. He will, I mean, it, most likely, he has the most stable presidential approval uh, in, in, perhaps on record. Uh, so, so he will leave more popular than Bush. He will leave the country in a different place than Bush did. Remember, Bush left in the middle of two wars that were dragging on. 
the uh, economy in a state of uh, recession and, and we just avoided narrowly a collapse. Um, so yeah, so I, I don't think people will repudiate Trump. What they're gonna try to do is take Trump's insights into the American electorate and to, into the Republican electorate and, um, and use them to, to form, a, to, to model a politics that has a lot of Trumpism, but not Trump's own eccentricities. Well, final um, question to Oliver Wiseman. Uh, leaders don't just change their country and their own party. They often have a big effect on their opponents as well. What, what will Donald Trump's legacy be for uh, the Democrats uh, if indeed um, uh, we have a President Biden in the new year? Uh, what have the Democrats learned from Donald Trump? Well, I think not enough is probably the answer based on these results. Uh, I think that like the Trump years will, if you're just a historian of the American left and the Democratic Party, the Trump years will kind of go down as a time when they got enormously distracted by Trump um, and what he meant and failed to look at the question of his meaning kind of as dispassionately as they should have done and didn't, um, you know, did not put together a a vision for winning an election that was based on America as it exists, not a, rather than America as they would like it to exist. And, you know, it's funny, we're talking here, I mean, I don't want to get too carried away. Biden, look, it looks like we'll, we'll win this election. Um, in, in that sense, it kind of reminds me of the UK general election 2017, actually, where, um, you know, the Conservatives won, but massively underperformed expectations. And afterwards, um, it, was the, it was Jeremy Corbyn, the opposition leader, who who had the sort of all the, all the political momentum. Um, that's not quite exactly the same dynamic here, but it is, it's a funny race in which kind of no one is that happy. No one is kind of won in the way um, you, you might expect. And no one has, as, as Matthew said earlier, we sort, of, we sort of want this, a sort of sense of history that suggests that this election has to kind of pass final judgment on the Trump years one way or the other. And actually it hasn't done that. And, and I think, that kind of ties in neatly with what we're saying here about Trump not being, you know, for all his stylistic um, quirks, you know, American politics is maybe just not as weird as we thought it was. Well, with that thought, final judgment may be deferred, but for the interim judgments you've provided us, uh, Luke Thompson, Matthew Continenti, and Oliver Wiseman, thank you very much for joining the Critic Podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.